I got myself into a lot of trouble from ages 12 to 15. I drank a lot and I smoked a lot of pot. One time I accidentally set an abandoned building on fire. Another time, and I should say that I grew up in Maine, I took a bus to Delaware and then to Pennsylvania to see friends I met on the internet back when internet friends were people that you were genuinely supposed to be scared of. (laughs) Got myself into a number of situations that are in retrospect terrifyingly adult. So yes, I got into a lot of trouble. Oh, and I should tell you, this is National Demystified. I am your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is a show in which I get to know the city better. Um, I used to say a longer thing, but that's it. That's sort of what this show is about. It's about me getting to know Nashville, my home. Today is about the 1998 tornadoes that swept through the city. We're covering them for obvious reasons. National Demystified is brought to you by Knack Factory, a commercial and creative content production firm with offices in Nashville. And it's distributed by We Own This Town, one of the best podcast networks in all of human history. It is a collection of podcasts made by folks from Nashville, and they're all good and they're worth checking out. So you should do that. A quick note about last week's tornado. I hope you are doing okay. And if you're not, I hope that you're taking care of yourself however you're able. It's okay to not be okay. This past week was fucked. Now, on to the show. I was, as they termed it back then, hyperactive, which meant I largely wanted to do the right thing, but I had so much energy and I didn't have a ton of productive or constructive places to put it that it usually led to some sort of calamity. Anyway, because some teachers hadn't given up on me, I ended up getting this opportunity to go to a four-day leadership camp called Hobie, which was the Hugh O'Brien Youth Leadership Seminars, and it changed my life. I met a lot of people who had turned all that energy that I seemed to have in excess into some sort of plan and make things better than they had found them, and I felt moved by that. I started thinking of all the ways that I could put that energy into helping make things better, you know, like these people were doing. And I was still a disaster and I still (laughs) would get into a lot of trouble, but not as much. Uh, More than anything, I just wanted to be like the people I met at that camp, the people who had seemed like they figured something out, something that I know nothing about. Around that time, I had heard about an outbreak of tornadoes that was, quote, somewhere in the South. It happened across a handful of states. I knew that. And over the couple of days, it happened from April 16th through 19th, which I know in retrospect. And the tornadoes kept coming and coming and destroying full towns and and killing many in its path and then destroying thousands of homes. And what struck me is that people just didn't know when it would stop. And that was terrifying. I remember I'm, I'm from Maine. And so our weather kills us slowly. I don't, I don't even say that in a joking way. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the winter comes and it's car accident by a car accident and, uh, uh, through depression that it hits and the tornado is kind of uh, the opposite of that. It's just this, you know, violent piece of chaos that comes all at once. And it was just so alien and terrifying. And I'd heard that, uh, among many other things, a tornado had touched down in one of the cities, a city, which just seemed again, unfathomable. And for whatever reason, it struck a chord. And, you know, I'd just gotten out of leadership camp, (laughs) which someone had snuck me into basically. And I'd learned that if you had something that you wanted to change, you could do so. And if people needed help, you could do that. And for whatever reason, I 
had decided that I would get a bucket, like a five gallon bucket, one of those like kind of pickle buckets with a handle. And I'd walk around my high school for two weeks and uh, I'd collect change and money from anyone who had it. And I'd explain why we were doing it. And people started to put change in the bucket and started to get really heavy. (laughs) I had to dump it out sometimes. And they'd bring in cash as well. And I would just collect and collect and collect. And uh, I called a local alternative rock station and I told them what I was doing. And and they said something on the air about it. And because the rock station was, I think, uh, had owned a couple channels, they said something across their channels. And my, uh, of all people, my orthodontist heard about it. And he contributed $75, which I thought was just unfathomable. Like $75 is how much inexpensive video game cost when I was a kid. It was like the the video games, like Mortal Kombat 2 cost $75 or something along those lines. Uh, It was so much money. It was like, it was incredible. And, you know, I was just collecting change uh, and I kept doing it and kept doing it. And I, it felt really good. At the beginning of the show, I mentioned my, quote, internet friends. I spent a lot of time on the internet around this time. I think I'd gotten online around 1997. And so I spent a lot of time, particularly on Kevin Smith's message boards. The writer and director was one of the first filmmakers to sort of fully embrace the internet and really get involved in his fan community. So I called View Askew Productions. View Askew was Kevin Smith's production company. I told them what I was doing. <laughs> I can't even imagine what I sounded like, but I told them what I was doing. And I asked if they'd match whatever we raised and they agreed. They said they'd do that. And this was 1998, you know, because that's when the tornadoes were. And uh, I was 15 and I got the director of Mallrats, my favorite movie at the time, to donate to these tornado relief efforts. And I think altogether we sent like $1,000 to the American Red Cross or United Way or something like that. And it felt great. It felt unstoppable. I went from a kid who set abandoned buildings on fire (laughs) to someone who felt like uh, he could do something. Um, And big thanks, by the way, uh, I should say to Kevin Smith, all these 22 years later, and to my orthodontist, Dr. Podhauser, of course, and all the kids at Sacramento Valley High School for uh, giving what they gave at that time. You, You know, you're in high school and just like giving a couple bucks is a lot, especially out in rural Maine. It meant a lot. So I've thought of that story a handful of times since, though the center of that story, when I think about it, is the change bucket in Kevin Smith. I was reminded, of course, that this was tornado related, that that was why I was doing this fundraising. And I put two and two together for the first time that the tornado that touched down in the city was a tornado that touched down in Nashville. And I was reminded of this, of course, when a tornado touched down in town last week. Um, And so I wanted to better understand what that was and what that meant and better understand, you know, why I ended up getting involved in this thing and understand it as precedent for what we saw last week. And this is where I should definitely say um, so much of the reporting for this show is just comes from looking back on the Tennessean archives. It's just so much incredible stuff there. And uh, I'm grateful it's all available online. So that's where the majority of this reporting comes from unless otherwise noted And so for the next couple of episodes, I'm going to dive further into the history of the 98 tornado before jumping back into our Music City Tales from the 1980s arc, which is, if you don't know, a miniseries about Nashville in the 1980s, which we're in the middle of now, but I'm going to pause to look at the 98 tornado. 
I was hoping to launch into talking about the tornadoes in earnest, uh, but so much happened in 98 that I want to do it justice. Next week, I'll cover the storm and the 72 hours that followed, and then I will get into the ways that Nashville changed in the aftermath, both immediately and in the long term. I wanted to start, though, by talking about the sole mortal casualty of the 1998 Nashville tornadoes. At least, it appears to be the sole casualty. We'll dive into that further later. In the same way, it's remarkable that last week's tornado didn't take more lives. It's nearly unimaginable to consider what might have been done had it come a few hours earlier when Five Points was busy with bar and downtown traffic. It is truly wild that the 98 event did not take more lives than it did. It hit downtown, tearing the exterior wall off the turf, a then popular Broadway bar, during happy hour. It took the roof off a daycare center with over 100 kids under five years old inside. There were countless other close calls like this as the 150 mile per hour winds that emerged at 3.30 and then shortly after five resulted in damage to 300 buildings and 40,000 Davidson County homes. It destroyed 20,000 trees and 50 people were hospitalized. An interesting side note that doesn't seem to get remembered because it was reported days after the tornado is that when the clouds came in, a student at Belmont was struck by lightning while at soccer practice. The blast hit him and it knocked over several other players as they were leaving the field when they saw the clouds making their way in. CPR was administered by a student trainer and a teammate. The student who was, uh, who was struck was successfully revived, getting away very lucky with only uh, first degree burns. So that's that's not a casualty, but that is a thing that happened. That not I can as far as I can tell, I, not a lot of people seem to associate that with that day. But over in East Nashville, the tornado downed a tree that landed on a 44-year-old man named Tom Coletta. Coletta was drinking and talking with friends before passing out and as far as I can tell, he came to and he saw the tornado coming in. It was coming in fast and hard and it landed on him. It crushed his right arm, it shattered his right leg, and a blow to his abdomen cut his bowel. Upon being found by emergency crews, Coletta had no identification, just a piece of paper with his friend's phone number on it. The crews brought him to Baptist Hospital, which is now known as St. Thomas Midtown, and it would be almost a week before they could find his family in California. And by the time they could, the news that they had about him wasn't particularly optimistic. And Coletta is homeless. He lived uh, without a home for a number of years in Nashville before the tornado struck. He arrived in the city in 1992. He had an apartment then. He had a girlfriend. He had a guitar. Uh, He had previously lived on the streets in California. Um, But he got here, seemed to get it together a bit. But then he started drinking as he had on and off through his life. And he lost control. He ended up living on the streets, like I said, prior to his time in Nashville, when he was a kid in California, he'd been an Eagle Scout, and eventually he played in a country band. And when the 60s came around, he really started questioning things in a big way, Um, particularly religion. He got into yoga, he got into meditation, he started reading about Eastern religions, but none of it ever stuck. He just was sort of curious and was wondering what the heck was going on. And he went to California State University, but he didn't graduate. Uh, He never completed there. And he ended up getting drafted to go to Vietnam. Didn't mix well with someone who, while the Eastern religions didn't stick, he felt committed to nonviolence. But in the end, it didn't really matter because he was, and this is, I'm just trying to imagine this. He was six feet, one inches tall, 
and he was 110 pounds. So he would be dismissed from duty for being underweight, which worked for his uh, lack of wanting to be involved due to his, uh, his outlook and philosophy. So upon his return home, his mother died of cancer uh, and he couldn't get a job. And so he began drinking and things were rocky for years and years. His sister told him that he could stay with her as long as he stayed sober and this didn't work for long. So he eventually, in the 90s, in the early 90s, he moves to Nashville, like we said, and started doing okay for himself and then finally he just wasn't doing okay. He lived in the streets unless it was too cold and then he would spend a night here and there in the shelter He would pick up some cans and occasionally receive donations from his friends. He tried like hell to stay away from the bottle, say friends who knew him on the streets and other folks. Uh, He was overall a gentle person and he just tried to keep it together, but he couldn't always do that. Since he couldn't talk when he was in the hospital, his sister, who was living in California, would make him tapes that doctors and visiting friends could put over his ears using headphones. The tapes would contain country music, Tom's music, uh, his sister's commentary about their life and history. The tapes would tell Tom how much she loved him. They would contain pleas for him to get sober. She would tell him that she wanted him to come home out to California. Six weeks into his stay, he was moved from critical to serious condition, which is an upgrade, as I understand it. And his doctors noted that he must have a guardian angel on his side. Though, you know, as doctors do, they said they didn't want to get too spiritual or sentimental and acknowledging as much. They went from counting down his days to expecting he'd walk out. He'd just get up and walk out in several weeks. So that's the last we hear from him in this reporting that happened on May 28th. That's it. Uh, All the news on Tom that I could find. Uh, The last we hear from him, he's in serious condition, as they say, and there's just no more mention of him after the fact, as far as I can tell. No follow-up. I can't find an obituary that's happened between then and now. I'm not sure where Tom landed after that. If you know, I would love to know. So Tom might be a casualty. Tom might not be a casualty. I'm not entirely sure, but I, I would love to know where he ended up. Over in Centennial Park, about 50 ROTC cadets had gathered for a celebratory end-of-year picnic. The end of the school year was drawing near. Kevin Longanati, a leader in the Army ROTC, was a Vanderbilt senior originally from Memphis. He was handsome and bright and broad and strong. The underclassmen surrounded Kevin to thank him for being so helpful, so thoughtful, and for being so supportive of their training throughout the year. Until recently, actually, Kevin, in addition to the ROTC, was a part of the uh, the marching band, which I think is super cool. <laughs> I love that so much. He wrote papers on subjectivity and Martin Luther King and the Socratic practice. He was known for his drive and his love of math. Bless him. <laughs> he would stay up late with underclassmen. He was passionate about the subject and about helping people. He was noted for being a giver, for never doing anything just for the money. He always wanted to help other people. For example, Kevin was scheduled to, the following week, be commissioned as a second lieutenant. And upon graduating, he was looking forward to becoming a special education teacher. The weather turned fast. The pressure changed and everyone at the picnic got up to run when a big tree came down. The top of the tree scraped up a few of the picnic goers. It wasn't until somebody calmly called out, can somebody get this tree off me, that anybody realized that the massive trunk had landed on the lower half of Kevin's body. Park workers arrived, 
can gather to cut the tree off Kevin from start to finish. The operation took over 45 minutes. Kevin offered up his arm to have his blood pressure taken. Everybody waited. Upon being removed from the site, Kevin was given an hour to live. His pelvis was crushed and he lost blood so quickly that he almost ran the hospital dry. I think he used, uh, I think they said 90 units of blood, which is a lot of blood. That's, that's a good deal. And so his friends at Vanderbilt came together to run a blood drive in his honor because that's exactly what Kevin would have done. He was noted for his strength and for being incredibly giving. A week later, he was in critical but stable condition, meaning his future was no longer hour to hour. Though the extent of his injuries were still not fully known, his pelvis was crushed. His family expressed confidence in his survival. I think it had to fall on someone strong enough to take it, said his mother, Debbie Slepica. It was fate. It would have crushed anyone else. But another week went by and then another, and the extent of Kevin's trauma was too much for his body to handle. He finally passed from the severity of his internal injuries. His brother Tony said, he was there spiritually for us. He never quit, but his body, it was tired. It was time for him to go. Not even a week later at his graduation, Kevin's mother, Debbie Slepica, received his diploma at commencement. She received a standing ovation. Having already completed the requirements for commissioning, Kevin was posthumously named second lieutenant. At that commencement, his mother said to the crowd, Kevin's goal was truly to make the world a better place. And he did. A year later in Kevin's memory, the Vanderbilt ROTC would hold another blood drive. This one marking the date of the tornado, April 16th. These drives would continue to be held by various ROTC organizations throughout the country through at least the year 2000. Within weeks of the accident, Kevin's mother began to push Metro to install weather sirens, and they eventually did just that. To that point, warnings were largely radio-based. Slepica, again Kevin's mother, said, My greatest fear is that another tornado could go through, damage a school and kill children, or hit a neighborhood and kill people. Before the sirens were installed in June of 2000, the Tennessee state legislature would file a resolution to honor Kevin's memory and to encourage Nashville Metro to install that siren-based system. Of Kevin, the resolution said, we honor the memory of a bright and compassionate young Tennessean, Kevin Longinati, whose life of promise and achievement was cut short as the result of the 1998 tornado in Nashville. These stories are interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is thanks to especially phenomenal reporting from the Tennessean, we're able to get a really lovely picture of a couple of people for whom there is otherwise not a ton of information online because this is back when people weren't, quote, extremely online, as the kids say. A Tennessean reporter named John Yates did some truly wonderful reporting on Coletta to paint a picture of a complicated man. And there were a number of reports I pulled from to get to know Longinati. It is also interesting because it paints a picture of who gets covered in the press and why and who does not. There are the stories of a relatively solitary transient and a beloved Vanderbilt senior. One had no resources at their disposal after a long, difficult life, and another was beloved and so well-connected within his community that not only did his friends conduct a blood drive in response to this tragedy, they conducted a blood drive to replace the blood that he used. They weren't even getting blood for him. They were getting it to replace it because they knew that that is something that he'd want, and they kept doing so a couple years after he died. 
Because of this, his name was kept alive in the press throughout his struggle while he was hospitalized over the course of three weeks after the storm. And even years after he died, whereas Coletta were left to presume was fine, maybe, maybe not. It was thought that Kevin would pull through and Kevin was a, was a strong and well-connected uh, young man. And uh, Coletta was not. He was in the hospital for six weeks. Uh, and, and we don't know where he landed, even though it sounded like his prognosis was maybe uh, positive. Where did Coletta end up? As the reporting goes, we just don't know. There are only a few passing mentions of him uh, after the storm, before a profile will come out six weeks afterward. And then after that, we just never hear from him again. Not even an obituary. I can't find information about him anywhere. I've reached out to who I think is his sister to see if there's any info on what happened next, but I have not yet heard back. I should say this all compels me to remind that there are so many great organizations to support in this time of recovery, this one that's happening at this moment right now. There's the Community Foundation of Middle Tennessee, and there's Gideon's Army, and they're all doing great work. And then there is, as I have advocated for before, Open Table Nashville, who we've had on the show in the past. They work with the city's homeless population year-round, and they pay attention to folks even when the press is stretched to focus on other priorities. And... I should say, Kevin Smith, if you're listening, please consider doing Nashville a solid for old time's sake. All right, that's it for Nashville Demystified. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Cameron Davidson for making the show sound so good. And we own this town for allowing us to be on this network of great podcasts. Next week, we'll get to know the 98 tornadoes and what that touchdown was like. We'll also come to understand what the following 72 hours was like. And then the week after, we will find out how it shaped the city for years to come. Okay, that's it. We'll talk soon.